Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. I am very jealous of all of you because you are about to learn of the legacy of the great Colonel Fuji. One of Mr. Fuji's relatives who did diabolical things in World War II. You will soon learn all about Colonel Fuji. But first, I got to do an intro. Welcome to Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, a show where we talk about classic pro wrestling from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. We are continuing our deep dive into the national expansion of 1984 of the World Wrestling Federation. And we have a lot of great rare audio for this show um i listened to it this morning and i i think it's one of the best stick to wrestlings ever steve and i could have remained silent throughout this episode it would have been one of the best episodes ever it might have even been better but i mean the audio is great before i get rolling um i want to thank everyone who has donated to stick to wrestling i don't think i have thanked people for donating like this entire calendar year it's because our uh, podcasting schedule has been a little bit up and down because we recorded these episodes in 2021. So I want to thank Brandon Jarvis, Josh Harvath, Charles Hurd, my man Nolan Lake from Oklahoma, uh, Jeffrey Dela Cruz, Matthew Hahn, David McCoy, and Matt O'Donnell for all contributing to Stick to Wrestling. If you would like to donate to Stick to Wrestling, uh, for this free, no commercial free podcast, uh, use PayPal and go to Pro Wrestling Archives, all one word, at gmail.com. And with that, oh, I also want to invite you to join our Facebook group. It is a fun group with a lot of great people. No trolls. It is just good conversation. So, and yeah, let. Uh, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, just search John McAdam and follow the guy who has the Stick to Wrestling logo as his avatar. I don't a hundred percent stick to wrestling so there, but I say it's about seventy-five uh, percent of it. With that, I am excited about this show. And here, Let's Gino Oakland interviewing the wrestlers. The national We're expansion going to be appearing at Madison Square Garden on Monday, January twenty-third, nineteen eighty-four. That was a big date. Here at the Big Apple, Monday night, January the 23rd, fantastic professional wrestling card that includes a rematch. We've all been waiting for the talk of uh, wrestling experts, not only in this area, but throughout the wrestling world. Sheik with the title defense, the challenger, former champion, Bob Backlund, the Iron Sheik of the classy Fred Blassie looking a bit like Yasser Arafat at this hour. Listen, you pencil neck geek. I wonder if the rest of those pencil neck geeks out there regained their voice. When that happened, they couldn't speak. They were speechless. Yet I told you beforehand what would happen. My man, the Iron Sheik, would win the world heavyweight title. And now, Bob Backlund, that chicken liver manager of yours, he couldn't stand the pain you were receiving. He threw in a towel. Well, I'm not that type of manager. They'd have to kill the Iron Sheik before I'd even think about throwing in a towel. Iron Sheik, you're th- Sheik of the honey, your thoughts on all of this? 
جناب خدمت همه شنوندگان ایرانی عزیز سلام عرض کنم با فخر آیت الله خمینی ایستو ایستو هاپی آیت الله بهشتی آیت الله بلاستی everybody so happy in the Tehran Iran big celebration big party I just want to know thank you very much gentlemen of the IRC manager Fred Lassie this man has got quite a ton of defense in store for him at Madison Square Garden on the 23rd. Tito Santana talking about title bouts on this sensational card. You're going to be meeting the intercontinental champion, the magnificent one, Don Morocco. Your thoughts? Well, Gene, this is a long time in the waiting for me, Gene. I've been working hard for seven and a half years, and I've been trailing Morocco for almost a year. A dream is coming true for Tito Santana, and it couldn't happen in a better place. You know, Morocco has held that belt for almost two years now, maybe longer. But Don Morocco, I don't agree the way you've been holding on to that belt. I know exactly where you're coming from. Le garantizo a toda la gente, latinos que me están escuchando, esa es la oportunidad para mí que he esperado años. Y ahora tengo la oportunidad aquí, en Madison Square Garden, de luchar en contra de Morocco y quitar la faja en frente de todos los latinos. Y es lo que más quiero yo porque represento a toda la gente latina de América. Arriba! Well, a great one. The Mexican star, Tito Santana, to challenge Don Morocco. Six-man tag team action, the Samoans, to meet the hey, trio me. of Tony Atlas, Rocky speak, Johnson, and Andre the Giant. New York area. Let me say a few words to the Spanish-speaking fans. Oh, go ahead. Tutele, amigos. Tele que pasos, amigos. Tele bote de capata, Tito Santana. Chate de beco, la cota, y la cucaracha, y habla española, y este, siete. All right. Don Morocco, on the subject of Tito Santana, if you could address yourself to the man who's going to be challenging you for this coveted belt. You know, they've come. And they've come, and they've stood in lines. And they walked to the door of Madison Square Garden. Because when you go to the garden, you go to see the Stones, you go to see Mick Jagger. You go to see the Jacksons, you go to see Michael. When you go to see professional wrestling, you go, you go to see Magnificence. So now, Tito Santana, the hot wind that blows in from the California desert. You come into the Big Apple. You come into Madison Square Garden. You come into my playground where I have fun with 22,000 people jump on their feet and screaming hatred and screaming anger because I am magnificent. And every time I've stood there, every time I've looked anybody in the eye, and I've said exactly what I say right now. I have never given up to nobody. I have never said stop to anybody. You can break. And you can squeeze, and you can twist me, but especially on the quarter 8th and 33rd, which I consider my home Ooh, he's sick. My man is sick. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Madison Square Garden, the big one, Monday night, January the 23rd. Two title bouts, six-man tag team action. In addition, four of the world's greatest visits, in tag team action. In addition, Chief J. Strongbow, newcomer, Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, the superstar, Iron Mike Sharp, and many, many others. It reads like the who's who in professional wrestling. January the 23rd, Monday night, Madison Square Garden. It's going to be a wrestling spectacular.
Okay, now, for those of you who have never seen these interviews before, what happens is you have the heels coming in from one side and the baby faces coming in from the other side. So they don't cross paths, right? I think, I came up with this a long time ago, not 1984, but once a year in every market, they should have had a heel, like, just get mouthy with the baby face, and the baby face should have said, hey, I get paid to fight. R- run along. What do you think, Steve? Oh, that, that's a great idea. Uh, <laughs> and occasionally in the old days, I know WWF did do angles like that where, uh, you know, maybe Bruno was doing an interview and Blassie would come in. And I, I remember a famous pull apart uh, Bruno had with Von Raschke and Blassie was there and, and uh, Gria and Zabisco were there to restore order. But no, that's a great idea as far as uh, using that kind of an idea periodically. Yeah, I mean, just remind everybody that, you know, so it doesn't look so staged. It's like, yeah, you know, once again, hey, I get paid to fight. They had a very funny moment in the Fred Blassie Iron Sheik interview where Fred Blassie says they'd practically have to kill the Iron Sheik before I threw in the towel, and Iron Sheik just gives him a look. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, he really uh, meant to be, I guess he was talking about Backlund, essentially, but... Uh... But, but yeah, these interviews were so, so well done. You know, Iron Sheik had been really uh, underutilized prior to the Backlund uh, title change. And, you know, if you're looking at wrestling and if you're trying to suspend disbelief and looking at it with the kayfabe eyes, um, you know, I, it just uh, almost like a regular sport. Iron Sheik was just a guy who got lucky on a given night. He uh, beat Backlund when Backlund was a little bit vulnerable. And now all of a sudden he's thrust into the national spotlight. Uh, Blassie really took the ball and ran with it as far as his participation. He really hadn't been in any huge, huge angles like this, going back to maybe uh, him managing Hogan against Andre in 1980. Uh, he was usually with the foreign menace or uh, uh, some kind of a secondary uh, challenger to Backlund. And uh, you also see Tito Santana come to the forefront. I mean, what a great addition he was. I mean, the WWF wasn't really well known for having uh, pretty boy tag teams like, say, the Rock and Roll Express. But Tito was kind of an ethnic version of uh, a baby face that the girls could get behind. And then uh, last but not least, you had Albano and Morocco uh, really at their best. Uh, as we talked about in recent weeks, uh, Morocco's in-ring performance may have fallen off a little bit, but he more than makes up for it here with his uh, talking to the people into the buildings with his crazy interviews and uh, Albano's at his best here. Uh, uh, really, uh, it, Albano at his peak right here. I need to know if that was if he was really speaking Spanish in that promo because he, I mean, you remember when he had Fuji and Saido when he would, he would do that like mimic Japanese, right? Right. So, but like that kind of sounded like Spanish to me. Obviously, I don't speak Spanish. I don't know. Yeah, I think that there was a little bit of it at the beginning, but it kind of quickly uh, de-evolved de- into uh, Pig Latin or something. I don't know, but <laughs> it was really it was really bad of it. Uh, but definitely these guys are big uh, heat generators, and I, people were just chomping in the bit to see Morocco get his uh, butt kicked by Santana. Yeah, I mentioned that it seemed like Morocco, it, it was time for him, based on the old formula, to lose the title and move on to another territory. Uh, about half of that happened. Yeah, absolutely. And in watching these tapes, and you just sent me a bunch of uh, CDs to watch, and I did, it's kind of like, 
you know, you see Morocco uh, still great on the interviews, but his in-ring stuff is really, uh, really uh, reaching new lows, and he's just, he's exhausted and out of shape. And and I, I was just watching this, thinking to myself, you know, Vince had, had somehow under the table just got like a working relationship with another promotion. Like let's just say hypothetically, it was world class, and Morocco goes to world class for six months, works there. You know, just does his thing there, and then when he's ready to come back, comes back, and he's all re- refreshed, revitalized. But it wasn't meant to be. I mean, Vince had a lot of uh, foresight, but he didn't really have a uh, kind of a feeder system promotion or a promotion to work with at that time to keep his guys uh, somewhat uh, freshened up. Yeah, I it and it seemed to me like you know guys like Morocco Orton. A few different guys, you know, by 1987, certainly by 1988, they they had their run. There was nothing left for them to do uh, for the WWF. And, you know, Morocco was more or less ready to go home. But Orton, you know, got stuck working uh, WCW for a while and then independent. So, uh, I mean, like I said, the, the world, I mean, the world was changing. And that was one of the big changes. Like, you know, once the WWF was done with you, you more or less were done. Yeah, and I think another guy is a good example of that would be Greg Valentine. He was, uh, uh, you know, you and I think you and I differ a little bit. I say he was out of gas by about 87, and I think you say about 86. But either way, I mean, if he had been able to go somewhere else, Texas or another promotion for a year or two, and then maybe come back, people would want to see him again. But when they, you know, give him a new push in 88 with uh, Jimmy Jimmy Hart as his manager, and they're having a big feud with him and Ronnie Garvin in 89 and eventually turning Valentine a babyface about two years later after Rhythm and Blues. I mean, it just, it was just too much. I mean, he was just, you know, had worn out his welcome four or five years earlier. So, no, I mean, they had, they had drained every drop of, of juice out of the Greg Valentine orange. And, you know, not to get off subject, but I think that's one thing that really hurt JCP is that Dusty Rhodes couldn't figure out how to navigate in these uncharted waters where, you know, you're stuck with the same guys year after year. And, you know, he just didn't know, he didn't know, he didn't know what to do with it. I think, I think one of Dusty's big weaknesses would be, I think he was afraid to let in uh, new talent into the clique of talent that he liked to use. He had this kind of small clique of uh, guys he loved using, like Magnum and Nikita and Ivan Koloff and a few others. But, you know, how come Vince uh, found Randy Savage and, you know, immediately put him to use and uh, became one of the, almost immediately he was a main event superstar and became a legend. But why couldn't JCP have done that with Savage? Because Dusty's ego was too fragile or, or Flares or Jim Crockett. I mean, it's well, it's got to be one of those three. I mean, he, he brought in a crew of new guys in 1984 and 1985, basically re, you know, reinvented the whole territory, but it's like he didn't realize, hey, you have to cycle through wrestlers. And, and like I said, I'm not, you know, jumping down on Dusty because it was it was a new world like I said it was uncharted waters speaking of uncharted waters we now have a victory corner uh, segment with the charismatic Robert DeBoard once again (laughs) these are for review purposes let's go thank you very much and welcome once again to victory corner This week's special guests are the newly crowned 
World Wrestling Federation's heavyweight champion and his manager and mentor, the Ayatollah Blassie. Iron Sheik, all the world, all the reading world of Victory Magazine wants to know what your reaction, what your thoughts are, what your feelings are now that you've won the belt, and what the reaction in Iran has been. Well, I leave it to the Iranian people because I know Iran is one of the old countries in the world and they know the Iran by two things, oil and wrestling. Long, long time ago, wrestling come from Persia, the old name was, the new name is Iran. I don't have to talk about myself to the Iranian people. All the Iranian people know the Khosrow Vaziri, Olympic champion, AAU champion, and I've been to the Wolves game, I've been to the Asian game, I've been to the Moscow game, I've been to the all over. Now, I'm the world heavyweight champion in the United States of America, and between all the, all the champions, all the top people in the world, especially Bob Buckland. All American people, they've been in the library, they've been read about Iran, they know about the Aaron Sheik, one of the toughest, roughest wrestlers in the world. That's because I have that goal. I have before many goals, but this goal is the most important than all of them because professional wrestling is the toughest sport in the world. It's an all pleasure for the Iranian people, Muslim people, all the nation in the Middle East, all the Iranian people in the America. Salam alaikum, khidmati hamay shuma. Salam azmukaram, wa mafaqiyati hamay shuma ra arzumikaram. Hamay dunya pahlavunay Iran amishtase, maqsusan gulam rizay takhti, na khusoy waziri, Thank you very much. Now back to ringside. I believe that will be the last we see of Victory Corner and Robert DeBoard, who I'm sure was a nice guy, but I think he was in over his head uh, trying to interview pro wrestlers. Oh, yeah, he really was. And uh, I, I, I wonder how seriously Vince really uh, thought of the Victory Corner segment, if he was just trans- using it as a transition to when Piper was going to take over, or if he felt like this was something, uh, you know, really that w- would have gotten over with the audience. I, I guess I, I'm imagining it must have had to have been just like a transitionary thing. Let's have this milk toast uh, little guy uh, host the show and that way when piper comes on he'll be larger than life and really have a huge impact uh, that's what i'm guessing was i i am purely speculating here but I, I really don't think that's how it went i think vince wanted an advertisement for victory magazine in mm-hmm. the middle of the show you know kind of disguised as an as a wrestler interview but that was the the main point of it and the original piper's pit mm-hmm. was going to be roddy piper having a, a, an article in the magazine and i think vince just called an audible here he's like you know this is not a very dynamic segment uh let me try something with roddy piper you know, I've always said this about the 1984 through maybe middle of 1986 WWF. Like, I, I don't think a lot of it was really planned out all that well. I think McMahon kind of just threw spaghetti at the wall and, and to see what would stick and came up with stuff at the last minute. Case in point, and I guess I'm going to be ruining a surprise here, but when Cindy Lauper finally shows up, or when they finally start the Cindy Lauper angle, Wendy Richter is still a heel. She is still wrestling as a heel all throughout the circuit. Wow. It, it, it's, that's just uh, mind-blowing to even hear that. And um, and I know what you're talking about is I saw one of the tapes, and and there was a tag team match where she's involved and definitely not a baby face and they're definitely not pushing her either. So uh, it's, it's a, it's a miracle to 
uh, imagine her, you know, debuting and debuting with Cindy by her side and then getting her over. It all happened just so, so fast. Uh, like you said, it's just like throwing stuff up on the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, obviously, events had like a, a magic touch with a lot of this stuff. Uh, a lot of the stuff that uh, failed, like TNT eventually would after a couple of years on the air, uh, that went off the air. But uh, not everything worked, but he definitely kept the stuff that was good and then tweaked the rest. And um, I think the uh, the period that you know followed the national expansion, whether you want to call it 86, 87, there were some really solid periods in there too. But we're going to see as we take this journey back in the past, uh, lots of uh, more positive than negative steps by Vince, I would say. I would I would be inclined to agree, even as a, a wrestling fan who liked a lot, you know, all of the promotions, including WWF. Uh, yeah, one other thing about Wendy Richter, too, in March of 1984, she was in Mid-South Wrestling doing a, a big angle with Jim Cornette uh, and Hacksaw Jim Duggan. So they, they obviously they had no idea who they were going to use, but we'll, we'll talk more about that later. Iron Sheik, for four weeks of his life is a world heavyweight champion. He must uh, have occasionally said to himself, man, for that four weeks, it was Ric Flair, Nick Bockwinkle, and me. It, it, it must be just wow. <laughs> That's interesting that you put it that way, uh, being that he had relationships with the two other guys. In fact, uh, I think Iron Sheik may have been one of the trainers or one of the assistant uh, trainers when Flair was having his training at Burns Camp. So these were all, all three champions had some AWA backgrounds at the time. But as short as uh, Cosmo Missouri's run was as world champion of WWF, uh, as the weeks unfold, you really see he really took the, the most of this short championship run and really ran with it because uh, he almost immediately gets into this thing with Sergeant Slaughter and this becomes, uh, you know, arguably the, the biggest uh, event of 84 as far as the wrestling goes. Not so much the, um, you know, outside of the ring stuff, but uh, a Sheik Slaughter would become a huge, huge issue because that he, he was champion at one point. And uh, now Slaughter was defending the USA against this uh, dreaded menace who was uh, hoping to rewin the world title as well. Yeah, Sheik had an interesting 1984 and or, end of 1983, to say the least. That was quite a shocking title change. All right, now we have more footage of Gene Okerlund talking to the wrestlers about their upcoming matches at Madison Square Garden. Let's go to that. What a way to kick off 1984, Madison Square Garden, Monday night, January the 23rd. Wrestling spectacular, perhaps an understatement. Two world title bouts, plus six-man tag team action. The Samoans on one side to meet the trio of Tony Atlas, Rocky Johnson, and Andre the Giant. More on that later. Intercontinental title defense for Don Morocco, the magnificent one. The challenger, Tito Santana. We have seen him in action. I am not going to dwell on what has just transpired. Bob Backlund former world's heavyweight champion. An opportunity to meet the Sheik here on the 23rd and regain the title that you held for years. I know the disappointment, the anguish, the trauma that you, your family, and friends have experienced. Your thoughts going into this one? Well, I really feel like I let all the people down and feel like I let my family down. 
all the friends that I had, but I tried to look at the side or the good side of everything. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of people that could support me when I was uh, on top of the world. But right now, when I'm down, when I'm hurt a little bit, now I find out who my true friends are, who the people that are going to be supporting me. Some people come up to me and say, in our hearts, you're still the champion. And I appreciate that, and I love you for that. And I don't care. There's only one person in that Madison Square Garden. That one person is my friend. My toughest thing I ever did in my life is when I went home. The next day, I had to tell my daughter that I was no longer the WWF champion. She said, Dad, we got to get that back. And I promised her. And I promise you people, I will be the WWF champion again. The 23rd in the Garden, we'll find out. Steve, I was so tired of Bob Backlund by this point in time. I just, (laughs) he'd been on my TV since 1976, and I was just fed up with the guy. Yeah, yeah, I know you pointed this out on some old Stick to Wrestling episodes. It was like, you had all these great, great challengers coming in. uh, Morocco, Valentine, uh, a whole host of others. And um, you, you never imagined it would be the Iron Sheik would be the one to finally beat him. But, you know, Backlund's time had really come and gone. I mean, as far as uh, the fans just wanted to see something fresh, something different. Uh, Hogan definitely was a, a complete different uh, performer than, than uh, Backlund. I think Backlund didn't really, didn't really involve or engage the, the viewer in, in the getting uh, into the participation of the match. I mean, he, he did a great match, no doubt about it. But if you watch these, even the early Hogan matches, you see him uh, performing to the audience, uh, cupping his ear, or getting the fans to react. And, um, you know, he, he does probably a better job of doing that than the actual wrestling part. But you can tell the fans are just eating it up. I mean, the reaction that he got compared to the reaction Backlund got, it was like night and day. It, it totally was. I mean, you know, and, and I, I have no real idea, but I let's say Vince McMahon just decided, you know, not to go nationally. He's happy doing what he's doing. I I just believe he would have replaced Backlund sometime in 1984 anyway. I don't know with who. I don't know who, you know, I'm guessing it would have been like a superstar Billy Graham, you know, less than a year run before he replaced him with another baby face. But, I mean, it, it really felt like Backlund's time had come and gone. Yeah, I think part of it, too, is is the transition from Vince Sr. to Vince himself. Um, I think that, that Vince Sr. was very happy having Backlund as champion and, and liked things the way they were. Uh, Vince came in, uh, uh, started the purchase from the f- father in 82, and everything kind of transitioned, and uh, Vince... Uh, took full ownership eventually, and, and now he's set his course of action as far as the national expansion. He wants Hogan to be the face of the promotion, and um, everything is, is it's on course. It's on target now. So, uh, you know, what we, don't, we don't know what's happening behind the scenes, but at this point, Vince is planning on bringing in more talent, more acquisitions, and it's further decimating his, his rivals, the other promo- promotions. And um, there really isn't anybody that um, Vince doesn't get. I mean, he pretty, pretty much gets access to anybody he wants to bring in for the most part. 
Uh, for the for the most part, yeah. I mean, he couldn't get the Von Erichs, but they were the obvious and lone exception. Uh, and even then, Kerry eventually wound up in the WWF. Gene Okerlund, I mean, I, it's been 37 years now, but that guy is still a shock to the system. I was, I am so, I was so not used to him. I was used to a very laid back Vince McMahon who we're gonna we're gonna hear very dry Vince in a moment, and then you know Orkland just out of nowhere shows up with his carnival Barker style. <laughs> he never stops. Oh my God! Every word sounds like this. I mean, God. Yeah, that that was awful. He he was awful in that regard. Uh, it was nothing good about it. It was it was it it just seemed forced. It didn't seem natural. It didn't seem uh, welcoming or exciting or engaging. Uh, but uh, but the good news was that I think Vince overworked him so much that he kind of came off that high horse and eventually just kind of gravitated back to earth and just talked in his own voice. Uh, not not nearly as animated or over the top as what we're hearing here in these early early interviews, and um, and because he's doing these TV tapings where he has to uh, do these face to face interviews with the talent and do do them for literally every market in the country, yeah, he's exhausted and he he learns to chill out and he gets a lot better. But this early Gene Okerlund is just, um, in my opinion, uh, very 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 unlistenable too. Yeah, he's he's tough, and like I said, I mean, you know, I, I'm used to it by now, but like, I didn't know it was coming in 1984. It's like, where they find this guy? But and, and to hear him as an announcer on on the weekly show with Vince, uh, he, he took over from Patterson for a little while. He just uh, he just doesn't um, you know he he just seems to almost get in the way. I mean, Vince does a great job of knowing what to push, what not to push. Uh, and he needed a second banana, like a Bruno or a Pat Patterson, there to sit with him. Oakland just seemed completely out of place as a, a color man. Oh no, I mean, you know, a guy would take a bump, and he just, you know, the reaction wouldn't be to sell the bump. Or I guess it would be. He would just go, oh, yeah, right. It was just, it was just bad. Uh, anyway. We're now going to go to a Piper's Pit with Paul Orndorff, and we're going to hear that very dry Vince McMahon introduce the pit. Let's go to that. The official World Wrestling Federation magazine will look forward in every issue to Piper's Pit. A very interesting, no doubt, uh, article will evolve from time to time. And as a part of All-American Wrestling, we will also have Piper's Pit will no doubt be a most entertaining segment and no doubt we will hear from a rather opinionated Roddy Piper. Let's take you now to Piper's Pit and his special guest. Well, I'd just like you to know that it's a pleasure for you as it is for us to be back here on Piper's Pit in the hot seat and I want you to know that I sent invitations out to every wrestler in the entire WWF to come here to Piper's Hot Seat and Piper's Pit and the only man that had enough guts to come on and face me was Mr. Wonderful himself, Paul Orndorff. And Paul, I would like to tell you what a complete pleasure it is to have a man of your stature. You know, I take a look right now at, for instance, the current world heavyweight champion, Hulk Hogan. And I compare you to Hulk Hogan, and here's Hulk Hogan walking around with his belt, drinking Don Perry on. He's got a woman on each arm, you know. That's what we need falls asleep. They got someone to talk to, you see. And then I look at a man like you, who does not drink, does not smoke, 
does not swear, does not shack up with some nasty person someplace. All of he is is a complete athlete, and I want you to know that personally, I think in the future, that's the edge you will have on Hulk Hogan to becoming the world's heavyweight champion, and I want you to know with your magnificent physique, your intelligence, what a pleasure it is to have you here on the hot seat of Piper's Pit. Thank you, Rod. Thank you, Rod. You know, I got all the admiration in the world for you. You know, I was looking for a manager just like you were looking for somebody to manage. I wanted a man that had a body that was pretty close to mine, that was a nice body. No, thank you. Body. Hey, hey, babe. I wanted a man that had intelligence. I wanted a man that had some brains that could think, that had four years of college. Not like a bunch of these idiots out here sitting in the seats. I can understand. I wanted a man that had money, baby. This is what it's all about, you know, money. I wanted a man that had it all. And you know something? Hey, I think, I think that we can go to the bank so many times together that it won't be funny. You know, hey, I'm well, let me tell you something. It's been, you know, it's men like you that are a credit to the wrestling world that the youth of America stands up and looks up to. And I thank you for having guts enough to be in Piper's Pit, brother, because it ain't easy to be in this sea of heat, brother. And I want you to take a look at this man. Beautiful. Thank you very much. The opinionated Roddy Piper and Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff. And no doubt we will see them in rustling action in addition to, of course, their commentary. Well, that was sure nice of Roddy Piper to invite every single wrestler in the WWF on Piper's Pit. And even nicer for Paul Orndorff to take him up on it. <laughs> yeah, and it's great to, to hear the two of them. I mean, who, who knew that about a year later they'd be uh, main, main eventing WrestleMania 1. And and they just, they were phenomenal. Uh, Piper, with his talking, uh, hadn't really uh, made a, a big uh, step forward as far as his wrestling in WWF goes. But uh, Orndorff certainly was starting to, uh, and we, beating everyone in sight. And, uh, you know, we saw he had a loss to Hogan at MSG, I think, in February. But uh, both of them were, were climbing up the ladder and definitely uh, getting known by the fans on the East Coast and really throughout the U.S. now that WWF was going national and nationwide. And they would be made eventually against each other in 1985, both in singles and tag matches in major arenas. But we'll get to that. Roddy Piper, I mean, I was a big fan of his, but man, I, I don't like him lying on his resume and saying, telling Paul Orndorff he had four years of college. That's just wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't think, uh, I knowing Piper, I mean, at least from what I've heard about him, I don't think he'd want to take uh, credit for something he didn't do, but uh, Roddy definitely came up through the school of hard knocks, as the old cliche goes, but uh, he really made a great career for himself in wrestling and in movies and TV and uh uh, that uh, any biography of him, if you have a heart, uh, you're definitely your heart's going to melt by the end of that. Uh, Annie show it was very well done. Uh, we talk about the contrast between Vince McMahon and Gene Okerlund. The Vince McMahon we were used to was the one who introduced that segment, just very low key. Here it is. That's what we were used to seeing. That we were used to seeing that guy interview the wrestlers before the matches at the Gar Boston Garden, Madison Square Garden, Philadelphia, and that's the contrast right there. Oh yeah, yeah, and and Oakland was kind of the perfect guy as as time would go on, and like as we get closer to WrestleMania one, when they did the vignettes with him interviewing Billy Martin and interviewing uh, other people, getting it all hyped up for the first WrestleMania. I mean, the Oakland was great in that. 
But I know, um, I, I mean, I look back fondly at that period of 84 to 87. I know occasionally, very rarely, Vince would come back and, and hold the mic to do promos for some of the MSG cards. I remember he did one with Bruno. It, was, it must have been like the one with him and Santana against San, Savage and uh, Adonis. But uh, just seeing Vince hold the mic there, uh, whether it was Bruno or Hogan or whoever it was, it, it really it really made the interview so much better. Uh, and maybe it's part of because that's what I was used to, used to growing up with. But Vince just uh, was, was great in that role uh, as an interviewer in addition to being the owner of the company. Oh, he he really was a good interviewer, and I mean, he'd sit there, and when Albano was out of control, Vince would like roll his eyes and do the Vince wince, as I called it. <laughs> right. But you know, I mean, that was to me that was like uh, just a straightforward guy who does interviews. Oh yeah, and and Oakland, I thought did a fine job as time would go on, and I even liked Ken Resnick when Ken Resnick did it for a while. Uh, uh, by the time Sean Mooney ended up doing it years later, it was oh, I think the wrestlers were doing their interviews with green screen and. They weren't really doing the localized promos anymore, and by that point, uh, the the whole uh, <laughs> the whole promotion was starting to jump the shark in my book. But that's another story for another day. January nineteen eighty eight, they stopped doing the localized promos. Everything was just very generic, and I get why they did it because they they had to do so many of them, and it was such a long day. But you're, I, I agree with you, Steve, that you know it, it took something away. Oh, it did. Yeah. Next, we have Andre the Giant being interviewed by Mean Gene Okerlund. Let's hear that. Thank you very much, Gorilla Monsoon. Some kind of a very impressive victory this week on All-American Wrestling. Come on in, the big man out of Grenoble, France, Andre the Giant, 490 pounds. And as I said, a very impressive victory. It had to feel good. I feel good. I still understood, and that is the way I want to stay. World Wrestling Federation action, and Andre, your record unblemished. I know that you're looking forward to meeting the best. I cannot say the biggest of the best because you are unquestionably the biggest professional athlete in any sport anywhere in the world. Thank you, but I feel really good because just right now, I'm very happy to come back here because before I was there, I finally get through John Stark. Now he's, he left the country, I don't, we, nobody knows where he is. So now I'm, I'm looking for another opponent. I want to find another opponent, I want to work against any one of them. Any one of them who wants to challenge me, they are welcome. Well, you know, Andre, a lot of new faces arriving in the World Wrestling Federation. And I should be quick to point out that we've got a brand new World's Heavyweight Champion in the incredible Hulk Hogan. I'm very happy about it. I will tell you, before I used to wrestle against him, and two times after that he was my partner, and now he's the world champion. And I'm very happy for him, because we never know, maybe someday I may be going to challenge him too. Wait a minute, that is just the point that I wanted to bring up with you, Andre. Are we ever going to see the day when possibly Andre the Giant would challenge Hulk Hogan for that coveted world title? That's why many times the people ask me that question why I'm not the champion. And I say all the time, I don't want to be the champion, I just want to be the giant. I just want to be only the giant. But maybe someday, I may be able to change my mind. Andre, you are truly a gentleman. These great fans here with us this week on All-American Wrestling, obviously in love with you. And I don't mind telling you, tremendously impressive victory that we have just seen. 
Thank you very much. You know, I'm not listening all over the world, and I show the people I'm only a giant. But now, maybe I want to show to the people that for myself, I maybe can be the champion too. What about it, you know ladies? What about it, ladies and gentlemen? There is only one Andre the Giant. I thank you, but merci beaucoup. You did All right, let's go back to Gorilla Monsoon at ringside. Well, it's audio, you can't see it, but Andre the Giant towers over Gene Okerlund in this segment. I think it's really uh, worth noting here, this was a very uh, unique segment because um, you're you're hearing something in this segment you're not going to hear probably ever again. Uh, Usually with Vince's stuff that he does as far as what they're pushing or what program they're pushing, it's always something that he can generate money off of right then and there. To hear Andre talk about something that's not even going to happen, like him against Hogan, yeah, we know in in reality it would happen three years later, but uh, this definitely wasn't on the books for 84. Maybe they were talking about it or thinking about it. It's certainly possible. But, um, you know, in the future, if Vince had ideas that were just speculation, it would be rare that the ideas would go in front of the cameras and actually make it on air. At least that's my opinion, John. What do you think? Well, I think what they were trying to do is Oakland asked, you know, Andre, are are you going to challenge Hogan for the title? And Andre just kind of said, no, I'm just happy being Andre the Giant. And that, you know, I mean, really, I, I think wrestling needed a little bit more of that. Like, you know, as a fan, when I first started watching, I'm like, okay, why isn't Ivan Putski <laughs> challenging Bruno Sammartino? And it's just mm-hmm. because that's just the way wrestling is. Right, right. Well, that, that that's true, and, and that was that was uh, a good point as far as uh, the course of that particular interview. But you know, listening to it and hearing Oakland uh, and even Andre's answer that you know he would be up for wrestling Hogan. I mean, it just it seems. Uh, kind of weird that they're they're speculating about a match that wouldn't happen for another three years. But I know in The Observer, I think one of the early 84 episode, issues of The Observer, Meltzer did speculate about them meeting up potentially later in 84 and maybe even a potential Shea Stadium show headlined by those two. But maybe that was just something they were kind of, uh, you know, pondering as time goes goes on. But it definitely didn't fulfill and didn't, definitely didn't happen this year. Uh, but I think it's also worth noting that uh, uh, at this time of national expansion, Andre was was finishing up uh, his dates as far as being lent out by WWF. And I think the very last time, uh, other than maybe a, a rare trip in 87 for Otto Vance, uh, they, they actually lent him out to world class in, I think, April of 84. So that would be the last time. Andre would really go to another promotion within the U.S. Uh, after he'd done it for many, many years. I mean, you know, if you're Iceman King Parsons, you have to be running around the rest of your life bl- bl- uh, bragging that Andre's last non-WWF uh, United States match had him and Andre against the two Super Destroyers in Dallas. <laughs> right, right. That is something I, to brag about, I guess. I get a lot of mileage out of that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, let me see. So, yeah, I mean, back to Andre, you know, quick little thing. I mean, I remember, you know, growing up when I first started getting the magazines, Andre would be like, no, I'm not interested in being world champion because I like to travel. And I'm thinking, okay, like the NWA WWF champions don't travel. But <laughs> again, that was just a built in excuse. Yeah, yeah, that was that was the story that they gave the magazines and other things. But um uh... 
you know, I, I think that, that uh, Vince Sr. was the guy who sent him around to all the territories. And I think that they, um, all the promoters had a good understanding of, you know, let's not screw up a good thing. Andre used sporadically in different areas as a huge draw. And if we just kind of share him appropriately with the other promotions and we all get a little bit of Andre, Andre doesn't get too overexposed. And that way, when he comes in, he can still pop the crowd and we can get a sellout fairly easily. So it was a great formula for a long time, but yeah, I'm sure Vince was happy to have um, Andre on his side when he started to expand nationally. You know, you made a good point. We talked earlier about how the world was changing and that, you know, wrestlers were no longer jumping from promotion to promotion. Um, I mean, Andre, I think, was one of the wrestlers who got the most hurt by being overexposed. I think, like, by 85, he had been on TV just too much. Um, they were running the same stuff with him against Bundy and Stud. And, you know, just like I said, having Andre as a constant worked against him probably more than any other wrestler. No, I think that's a great uh, great call on your part, John. I uh, I didn't even uh, really think about that, but you're, you're absolutely right. I can't think of another wrestler that... Uh, was hindered more by the expansion and the lack of uh, jumping than say Andre was. Nope. You're not a, you're not a special attraction if you're on TV every week and Andre <laughs> worked best as a special attraction. All right. Now we have a Piper's pit with Eddie Gilbert. Let's go to that. Ladies and gentlemen, it's certainly a pleasure for me. And I'm certainly, it's certainly a pleasure for you to be here. Uh, my guest today is Mr. Eddie Gilbert. Uh, which we're going to ask some very candid questions. Uh, this is the hot seat. And uh, Eddie, first of all, it's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, 22 years old, is that correct? That's right, Mr. Uh, here's a young fella. I want to point this out to the wrestling world and something that hasn't been brought up that's uh, been wrestling since he was 17 years old who has had some misfortunes, and now you're 22 years old. By the time I was 22 years old, I was the light heavyweight champion of the world, and here you are with some misfortunes, and uh, we all know that your father was a great wrestler, and he has been handling your career, and as hard as this is to say, uh, unfortunately, it's uh, misfortunes on your father's part, because I don't think that he's giving you the respect due to you, throwing you into, in other words, what I'm trying to say to you is the stupidity on your father's part in throwing you into certain, no, just a, uh, no, no, don't call my father stupid. No, no, pardon me, I, wait a second now, wait a second, I'm, like, let me, let me rephrase it, let me rephrase it, the, the ignorance, as in lack of knowledge on your father's part in putting you into the ring against these guys, you were in a car accident, is that correct? That's right. In a car accident. Yeah. Okay. You were severely hurt in a car accident. Yes. Okay. After your car accident, you went into the ring with a fellow named Superstar. Is that correct? Right. That's right. And and Superstar did break your neck. Is that correct? That's correct. Would you not call that mismanagement of a career to take your own son, your own flesh and blood, and after a car wreck and after being hurt, put him in against a man like Superstar who is 280 pounds, and then go and get your son's neck broken? Let me stop you just a second, Mr. Piper. I'm tired of hearing your big mouth now. Let me tell you... Wait, 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 wait. Let's, let me tell you something. I have grown up... All my life, all I wanted to be was a wrestler. And every time I've stepped in the ring, I've stepped against bigger men than this man, Superstar. I was ready when I went back. My father taught me well. 
and I'm very proud of my... Wait, 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 no, wait, wait, just a second, wait, uh, you talk about ignorance, I think you're very ignorant sitting here saying this about me and my family, because I'll take on anybody at any time to prove myself... You see now, you see now, now, there you go, that's one of the reasons that your career has not blossomed like it should is because you're getting hostile while we're sitting here trying to carry on an intelligent conversation. It's a, it's a very intelligent conversation. Well, I agree with you, and then that's your fault, and, and, and I'm sorry for your lack of knowledge, and, and if this is the attitude you're going to take, I've made my point, and that's all I can do. Thank you for being on Piper's Pit. Where do we begin? <laughs> oh, my. Eddie Gilbert looks like a kid who's being picked on at the playground. Which that, obviously, you can't see his face, so I'm telling you, he looks like he's just being picked on. Who would have thought that in real life, Eddie Gilbert was going to be quite the ladies' man who, ma- who married both Missy Hyatt and Medusa Michelli? Wow. Wow, that's that's exhausting just even thinking about that. I, I, <laughs> but anyhow, um, I think another thing that's interesting about that is uh, uh, the fact that uh, you know, they're, they're referencing Tommy Gilbert, who had never been in the WWF, and I don't think Vince or the other announcers ever acknowledged that he was a wrestler. So that was kind of interesting. Uh, I, I think in some of these early Piper's Pits, uh, especially the one where he uh, kind of does a little interview with Greg Valentine and they kind of do an acknowledgement of what they had went through together at Starcade. Um, <laughs> it was rare that they kind of acknowledged another promotion, but I guess this is one of those cases. Oh, uh, yeah, that would quickly go away. That, that would go from being done rarely to being done never as a strict rule. I, I mean, Piper's like, okay, I, I'm, I, maybe your father's not stupid, but he's ignorant. He doesn't know what he's doing. And it's like, <laughs> he just stands there and takes it. Yeah, it, it's funny. It's funny to watch like uh, these early episodes because uh, they give certain guys these roles that are really kind of beneath them. I mean, Eddie Gilbert was like a young up and coming guy, and they could have done a lot more with him. Instead, they're making him be this like like kind of a little. Uh, you know, Backlund, the clone, or just, uh, you know, one of Backlund's cronies. And and the, they later did a similar thing with Terry Daniels, making him uh, Sergeant Slaughter's uh, kind of his uh, maidservant or whatever you want to call him. But um, but I guess I guess to, to put up guys like make, make Piper a supervillain or make Slaughter a superhero, you have to have a little sidekicks and little things to make him stand out even more more prominently, I guess. I mean, yeah, you would think, I mean, I'm thinking, okay, they put Eddie Gilbert out there to do that specifically because they really didn't have plans for him. They didn't want uh, Piper doing that to a Bob Backlund, a Tito Santana, right. uh, uh, Andre the Giant, whoever. And we'll we'll see someone who, in the very near future, someone's not going to be putting up with Roddy Piper. Yeah, yeah. And, and to see him pound on like a little guy like this, it, it does make you want, as, as a viewer at home, to... To see, like, um, maybe potentially Rocky Johnson or someone like that stand up to Piper and uh, and, and challenge him to a match or something like that. Yeah, it, it's just a matter of time. I think they're, they're building it up quite well. All right, now let's hear another interview. We're going to hear from Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson. Once again, I want to remind everyone as well that this is surviving footage. It's, it's not pristine, but I think it's enjoyable. Let's hear that. Well, I thank you very much, Vince McMahon. Total chaos in the ring, as you saw this week. I want to bring in, if I may, Tony, At- Tony Atlas. Come on in, one half of the world tag team champions. 
Rocky Johnson. Now you brought us in, so let me say this. The war is just starting, brother. That's the way those tomorrow's won. If they want to get down, then we'll show you a whole new difference. Rocky Johnson and Tony Atlas, brother, because I'm sick, I'm tired, I'm fed up with them guys, and I know my partner feels exactly the same way. Well, the influence of Captain Lou Alfano was quite evident this week. Your thoughts, Tony Atlas, Mr. USA. Well, all I got to say, and I hope that I don't have to say this no more, is the fact that if the Samoans want to get down and inflict the pain, if they want to get K-I-N-K-Y, there's nobody can get more down like that than I can and Rocket Johnson. Now, we are the champions, Samoans. We got it if you like it or not. And there's one more thing that I am, brother, that you have forgotten. What I am, what Rocket is, is 50 stars on a baby blue background with 13 stripes. What I am, brother, I am all America. I am white, black, gentleman, and every other nationality. A man. Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson, it was a tag team that sounded really good on paper. I mean, I, I, I was thrilled when they won the tag team titles. And at the end of the day, I thought their reign was, it was unremarkable is the best word I can use. Nothing stood out. Yeah, I think on paper, they looked a lot better than they actually were. They were... Um... You know, just just two great singles guys that they put together, and they really had zero chemistry. I guess we found out subsequently that the two guys really didn't get along that well. Um, you know, when I watched their matches, Rocky is a lot more polished as a performer. I mean, he had been a pro for a long, long time, dating back to the mid-60s. So uh, that that's probably accounts for why he's a much more polished performer. I mean, Atlas uh, seemed much more impressive in his, his 1980 uh, uh, WWF stint. I, I know, think, think you looked at that fondly, too. Uh, but here, he just, he just seems lost to me. No, I mean, you're, you're right. There was no chemistry between the two of them. It, it later came out that they did not like each other. And I might be saying something a little bit controversial here, but, I mean, my understanding is that the black wrestlers tended not to get along with each other because, and this is horrible, but, like, the promoters kind of meted out that there was, like, going to be one black baby face in every territory, and if, you know, so every other black wrestler was a threat to you, or at least in theory. Yeah, I think that's very true, and if Rocky Johnson was, say, maybe um, between him and Bobo Brazil were the top two black wrestlers of the 70s as far as baby faces. And Tony Atlas came along at the end of the 70s, and he kind of emerged into that uh, probably top two spot. And now here's two guys that are, are vying for the same spot, but they're thrown together in a team. I, I guess I can see why there'd be a lot of friction there. Jealousy and politics are a very real thing in pro wrestling. Now let's hear Gene Okerlund do some promos for the Los Angeles show taking place on February 25th, 1984, for review purposes again. Los Angeles Area Olympic Auditorium here in L.A. Saturday night, February the 25th. It's two weeks away, and what a tremendous array of professional wrestling talent on this card. 
Tony Atlas signed of the card. No opponent named for him. Also, Sergeant Slaughter side promoters have not assigned opponent for him. Matches made superfly. Jimmy Snuka out of Fiji to go against the Golden Boy, Adrian Adonis. In addition, it's going to be Iron Mike Sharp meeting the great Mexican star Mil Mascaras. In addition, the incredible Hulk Hogan, world title defense for the new champion, the challenger to be the masked superstar. Tito Santana, come on in. Also, another great one out of Mexico. What an opportunity for you. The danger of a Texas death match, but the Intercontinental title and Don Morocco, your target at Olympic Auditorium on the 25th of the month. That's right. You know, Don Morocco, you got away the last time, brother. The referee saved you. Now we have a Texas death match. Professional wrestlers don't like this type of matches, Gene. Morocco didn't want this match to take place. I don't like it myself. I know somebody's going to get injured before the night's over, Morocco. I know you're a tough man. I know you got all kinds of tricks up your sleeve. But, brother, there must be a winner. You either got to give up or you get pinned in the middle. Te garantizo, este mexicano, toda mi vida he peleado para cualquier cosa que puedo tener. Yo sé que me voy a golpear yo o te vas a golpear tú, pero te garantizo enfrente de toda la gente mexicana. Tú vas a salir como un perro y te voy a ganar y voy a ser un ejemplo para toda la gente mía. ¡Arriba! He is the great one, Tito Santana, very, very popular with the great Mexican-Americans of Southern California, Captain Lou Albano, it is you that is tutored on Mr. Magnificent Don Morocco, and he currently is, yes, the Intercontinental oh, Champion. First of all, Slippery Gene, I'm not here to discredit the Mexican people. I don't discredit anyone's race. All I said that they were poor working people. They are class people that are known. What's wrong spend... with working people? They're below me. I don't approve of working people. I feel they're kind of uh, low class, let's put it that way. And I call, consider myself the elite, the Castilian, the pure Spaniard. <laughs> now let's talk about Tito Santana. Tito Santana, do you realize the importance of this match? Do you realize how important it can be to be the Intercontinental Champion, to proudly wear that belt? How lucrative the Intercontinental Champion, what it has made the captain? And you, Tito Santana, are a young punk, a young athlete in the prime of your life. This could establish you for the rest of your life. But only one obstacle, the magnificent Morocco and the captain filming in entirety. We're thoroughly prepared. We contemplate a tough time. We feel you're in good shape. We feel you're quick. We feel you have wrestling ability, but we have the captain and the magnificent Morocco. I contemplate a victory. I rest my case. I thank you very much, Captain Lou Albano. <laughs> thank Castilian. you. Thank you very much, indeed. Fan spectacular card. And again, I want to, if I may, emphasize the fact that there is a brand new World Wrestling Federation champion, the heavyweight champion, the incredible Hulk Hogan, at Olympic Auditorium two weeks from tonight. To meet this man, the challenger, the mass super... What's I've got the, the same feelings that the captain's got. I've got my passport ready. All things are go. They'll let me into Los Angeles now. And I'm coming after Hulk Hogan, Hulkamania. I'm coming in your backyard, Hulk. You're the pride and joy of the L.A. area. You're Mr. Top Notch, Mr. Number One, Mr. Golden Boy with the golden belt. Well, my luck has changed. I chased Bob Backlund all over the country. He finally loses the belt to the Sheik. The Sheik loses the belt to you, and you're going to lose the belt to me. But when I capture the belt, I'm going to have it for as long as I want to. Yeah, you're a tough dude on TV. You're a tough dude on the interviews with Johnny Carson. You're real bad in the movies. But this is real life. 
and that's a real ring, and we're going to be in a real fight. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the jury is still out. I can guarantee you one thing. It is going to be a fantastic wrestling spectacular for the great fans in the Los Angeles area at Olympic Auditorium Saturday night. That is two weeks from tonight, February the 25th. There will be two world title bouts, Mass Superstar, again to challenge the new heavyweight champion, the incredible Hulk Hogan, and of course the intercontinental title holder, the magnificent Don Morocco, in a special Texas death match with the great star out of Mexico, Tito Santana. Get your tickets in advance. It's going to be a night to remember two weeks from tonight here in Los Angeles. That masked in- superstar interview was outstanding. Yeah, it was really good and uh, to the point. And, uh, you know, watching him in some of these matches from 84, uh, to me at least, it seems like he changed dramatically uh, when he became, uh, I don't want to say uh, super machine, uh, but maybe more when he became axe demolition. Because uh, if you watch these matches from 84, not only is he huge, but he uh, moves around really, really well. And he's, he's not only super bulked up, but he's uh, uh, very he's very muscular. And uh, com- comparatively, when he's uh, axe demolition, he's much slower, uh, much more methodical. I, I know part of it is he wants to ha- change or wrestle with a different style to not let you know it's mass superstar, but um, definitely uh, he was he was a very impressive performer in this time frame. I agree, and his run in the WWF was coming to a close right around this time. We're at the end of February, mm-hmm. and he would wind up back in Georgia for mm-hmm. a little while, and then he kind of disappeared until he became the uh, the super machine in 1986. I know he wrestled in Japan. I know he wrestled a little bit in Calgary, but you know it's 1985. There's a wrestling war going on. You, if you're JCP, you know this guy. I never understood why they didn't bring him in. Yeah, they, they should have. I actually kind of have an idea, and I could be wrong on this. Uh, I know he ended up going to AWA a little bit in '84 and worked at the Montreal promotion. But knowing, uh, you know, I think Vince had a really tight relationship with Edie, and uh, and I know Andre was really close with him, and George Scott liked him because he was part of the promotion in the Carolinas. I have a feeling that they they were when they let him go around this time frame that they were telling him you know come back when you're ready. I don't think he realized he wouldn't be coming back as mass superstar, but they definitely found a role with him for him as uh, first a machine and then his demolition. I mean, I remember getting a tape of Mid-South Wrestling in like 87, and it was Mid-South from 1985, and oh, well, hey, it's the mass superstar. It's obviously not Bill Eady. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I didn't even know they, they tried to pull that deal and have a different mass superstar over there. I had no clue. No, they, they did it in Florida, too. Wow. <laughs> Anyway, Mass Superstar is out there talking about how Hulk Hogan should have just stayed on Johnny Carson. And man, I wish we had Hulk Hogan on Johnny Carson. Do we? Wishes come true! We have it! <laughs> For review purposes only, let's go to 1982, a little bit in the Wayback Machine, and see Hulk Hogan appearing on the Johnny Carson show. We showed a little film clip from Rocky Three, showing him in the ring with a professional wrestler. Now, the, the guy who played the wrestler was a pretty good-sized fellow, and his name is Hulk Hogan, and I'm told in the ring he's about as mean as he is big. Uh, 
We're going to show the little film clip here first. If for those of you who did not see Rocky III, get some idea of the part that he plays. I think Thunderlips is the name he plays yes. in the picture. Here's from Rocky III. Watch the monitor. All right, you guys, you know this is for fun, so take it easy and give him a good show. Listen, uh, after the match, how about uh, we get a Polaroid together, okay? You're in trouble. I'm gonna break him in half like this. Seems like lately everybody wants to beat me up. Stay away. Fake faces. Pull around the ring. Got a kick. All right. He is the ring. I get nervous every time he does that. You move pretty fast for a big guy, you know that? Listen, why don't we just move around a little bit, you know, like, give him a good show. First, I'll chase you and you chase me, okay? How's that? All right? Go easy. Here you go. Huh? Okay? That hurt, all right? Don't miss! How's that? Okay? That's bad, huh? Maybe we ought to bring out Brooke Shields first. <laughs> Would you He's welcome... He's not upset, is he? No, I hope not. Would you welcome Hulk Hogan? Wherever you want. Take, the, take my seat. Take my seat. Take my desk. <laughs> Are you, Hulk? <sighs> Does he want the little, the little footstool? We have a footstool, but I don't. Don't even say that. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. You are one good-sized person. Thank you. Thank you. One big man. Uh, what do I call you? Uh, Hulk, Mr. Hogan, uh, Mr. Your Hogan. Honor, Mr. sir. Mr. Hogan will be fine, definitely. Mr. Hogan. Uh, how, how many wrestling fans do we have out here? All right. Do you know? Do you know anything about Hulkamania? Hulkamania. Hulkamania. Uh, if you want me to. <laughs> what is Hulkamania? Well, Hulkamania is the newest thing, Johnny. It's the thing that is sweeping the country. I'm sure some of these guys over here might know about it. I hope. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, all right. Yeah, thank you. Okay, it's it's like it's like a new cult, and. Uh, it's like, follow the leader. Everybody does what the Hulkster does. It's like truth, justice, and the Hulk Hogan way. Right. And I hope today that we may be able to demonstrate or do a few things with you, so. Absolutely. I'm looking at the size of your arms. I don't believe this. I wish I had anything that big. your bank account. Uh, bank of, no. What, what are, uh, make a, uh, well, you're already making one, but uh, uh, if, if you flex that or, uh, how I, hate, I hate to show off. Well, that's all right. I mean, this is, uh, you are a professional and uh, what size are your, are your biceps? They're 24 inches, Johnny. Some women's waists are 24 yeah. inches, aren't they? Right. What, uh, where do you buy your clothes? Uh, <laughs> I mean, obviously you don't go in off the rack. And, no, uh, the, the thing is, I have a very big problem with the clothes. Uh, I have to have everything custom made. Yeah. And uh, usually the, the problem is getting the arms in and the thighs. What, uh, how big, uh, you gotta be 50, 50 inches around the chest at least. Uh, 60. 60? <laughs> <sighs> do, 
Do you have most of these things, uh, most of these things made? Uh, most of the stuff like this I have made. But uh, other things, I can go to a fat man store and get my legs in them, and then they just take the waist up. And close everything up. Uh-huh. You are, uh, somebody had to give me this picture here. Uh, uh-huh. This is the Ballast Point School, Miss Umsot's primary third grade. And you are, I'll just show you what you look like in the third grade. You can, I thought for a moment you were the fellow on the right in the picture there, but obviously this is the teacher, right? <laughs> but you are right, right here, but you're still bigger than... All the kids in the third grade, right? Where'd you get that picture? I, somebody, uh, it's yours. It's not mine. <laughs> one, one of our staff on that. Let me take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk some more, all right? Stay where you are. You're in the back. You just join us. We're talking with Hulk Hogan. We have... Brooke Shields and George Miller will join us. I suppose, uh, you say you weigh about what now, 320, something like that? 320, I don't know. Most people think very big people eat gigantic amounts of food. Not necessarily <laughs> true, right? Well, right now I'm uh, trying to keep my body weight under 320 or right around there. Yeah. If I was to eat normally or just about the same amount of food that you ate, I'd probably jump to 350 or 360. I have a very strange metabolism. Yeah, in other words, you burn it up easily? What, what, what's a normal? Oh, no. what, what would you have for breakfast? Well, it just depends. Steak and six eggs and... Uh... Snack. Snack for oh, breakfast. Oh, yeah, definitely uh-huh. a snack. Minor steak snack. and six eggs. Yeah. And, uh... Somebody said raw. Raw? No. <laughs> You've been wrestling professionally how long? Uh, seven years. About seven years. Always under the name Hulk Hogan? Uh, do I have to tell the truth? No, not necessarily. You can lie. We lie yes. a lot on the yes. show. <laughs> yes. Make up anything. Uh... Uh, wrestling. You know, when you talk about wrestling, Johnny, you hit on a, a point there, kind of, kind of like a schizoid. Yeah. Like, I'm kind of calmed down now, and I... You seem very tame, nice. Yes, and... I'm very... They, they've uh, kind of low-keyed me, you know, but when you talk about wrestling, or even mention yeah. the word professional wrestling, it kind of turns me into a stark, raving maniac, you know? <laughs> and I had a very hard time controlling myself with Sylvester Stallone, uh, because it would have been so easy just to... Yeah, of course. Uh... <laughs> Are most of the bouts fixed, or is that a bad question? Very bad question. Bad question. But, but the thing is... down is a bad question. The thing is, I, I wish they were fixed, because then it would be a lot easier. As you notice, the teeth marks around my fingers. Yes, you're right. Over here. If it was fixed, it'd be much easier, and probably everybody in there would be in it. But uh, professional wrestling is the cream of the crop. It's mostly... The wrestlers that come from the Olympics and uh, very good amateur wrestlers that make the grade and they get into professional wrestling. And uh, right now I wrestle main events all across the country. And if it was fixed, it'd be very much, very easier for me. But right now it's like a fight for your life every time you step in there. It really is that dangerous. Definitely. Well, I've always noticed when I watch it occasionally, uh, why a wrestler will throw the other one against the ropes and then stand in the middle of the ring while the other one goes clear across, bounces off the ropes, and comes back and does not move out of the way, and he knocks him down. I mean, what? Doesn't that seem, does that seem strange to you? I'm not saying that, I, it's, I I'm not saying that that's planned, but that's... I haven't, I haven't uh, noticed the instance you're talking about. Usually when I throw somebody in the ropes, it's, uh, I have something in mind that will kind of like destroy them or yeah. put them out for a little while when they do come off the ropes. But the thing is, you know, so many people talk about professional wrestling and I just wish I could take everybody here and spend 15 or 20 seconds with you and I could make believers out of everybody here I'm sure 
I think that's probably a fair assumption. Uh, <laughs> but the thing is, you know, professional wrestling is, draws more money than any, any major professional sport simply really? because we have no off-season. We work all year that's round. That's true, you do. And, You've been uh, in Japan, have you not? You're, you're going back there? Yes, I just came back and I'll be heading out in a few days. But, uh, do they know you now in Japan, uh, more from the movie, Rocky Three? Well, uh, they started publicizing the movie about a year ago over there, and uh, it's helped a little bit, you know, as far as uh, them knowing me as far as the movie goes, but wrestling and baseball are like their number one sports in Japan. And uh, they treat you, if you're a wrestler, they treat you just like you're a movie star anyway. Yeah. Is this your first movie? First movie? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah. How did this come about? Did Stallone just call you up or see you somewhere? Well, I was uh, wrestling in Madison Square Garden, and uh, I got a note from the promoter to call Sylvester Stallone for a major part in a Rocky movie. Right. I just took it and threw it away, figuring it was a, a joke, right. you know, from the other wrestlers. So I was gone for about eight weeks, and when I came back, there was this urgent telegram, please call Mr. Stallone immediately. So I called him, and uh, it was real, you know. Yeah. Do you enjoy making the picture? You gonna you gonna do some more? Uh, I hope so. I really You're kind of limited in rules, in a, in a in a way. What do you and mean? Then again, maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> no, I would like to get back on subject of wrestling just for yeah. a minute. Okay. Um, there's such a there's such a tremendous following, you know. Like I travel all over the world and all over the country, and uh, there's so many amateur programs and young people getting into the. The thing that uh, I hate to see people knock it or degrade it if they really don't know what they're talking about. Probably right there. And uh, <laughs> it's always been know. one of my favorite uh, sports. <laughs> I love it. Love it. Great, great, great. Love it. Wouldn't miss an Olympic every Friday night. <laughs> right down there in the front row. Um, we have to cut away. Yeah, you're leaving. Are you? Well, you all can do whatever you want to. Um, are you heading back to Japan? Uh, a few days, I will be back. Yeah. Well, it's great to meet you, really. Okay, thank you Hope very you much. enjoyed being on the show. For and, sure. Uh, and just remember, Hulkamania is running wild. Crazy. All thank right. you, Hulk. So, Steve, you saw the uh, the clip from Rocky Three. Who do you think was more gassed up, Hulk Hogan or Sylvester Stallone? <laughs> well... <laughs> I guess I'll go with Hogan. He's, uh, you know, a few a few inches uh, uh, taller than uh, <laughs> Stallone, but, uh, you know, a ton more weight and a ton more muscles. But Stallone, Stallone was pretty juiced for a guy who was about 5'7 or 5'8, whatever he was. Yeah, I one another rem- reminder to everyone that uh, all audio he used here on the National Expansion is for review purposes only. I mean, Hulk Hogan on, uh, no, a pro wrestler on Johnny Carson in 1982, uh, it was unheard of back then. Things were really changing, um, and I believe he was the lead guest ahead of Brooke Shields. Yeah, yeah, he, he was. And, you know, in watching this now, um, I, I have a couple of feelings about it. One, I, I, I mean, listening to it a second time now, um, you could tell that the audience was really into it. And I kind of think that they were into it more because of the way uh, Johnny and Ed uh, reacted to Hulk. Uh, I think Hulk's, uh, 
demeanor and his his personality, which are which were much more like Terry Bollea rather than Hulk Hogan. Um, to me, the the interview was kind of a disappointment. I mean, I think he should have come out like you know full full on Hogan, you know, full on uh, Hulkster, and uh, you know they wouldn't let him do it. it oh, okay, they wouldn't let him do it. Okay, he well, mentioned in the interview that you really? know they they told him to, to keep kind of keep it down. Really? Well, he well he did, and and, and I mean the uh, you can tell by the audience. I mean, it got over nonetheless, but. Uh, you know, I, I and I think in this era too, maybe uh, maybe it was the, a good decision that he made because, uh, you know, it, as the years would progress, and uh, I mean, you know, Hogan really went the full spectrum of interviews. I mean, he did Arsenio and said he didn't take steroids. He he ended up with the NWO on with uh, Jay Leno on the Tonight Show in Another Generation and. So, so he really spanned the gamut of the Tonight Show, but uh, here, uh, you know, it's kind of an awkward first interview. But like you said, this was historic because, I mean, other than Andre being on in the seventies with McLean Stevenson as the host, uh, having a wrestler on the Tonight Show was unheard of. No, completely unheard of. And as the eighties wore on, we saw more and more of that, obviously. Uh, but you know, here this is like a, a trailblazer. I'll tell you, Johnny Carson, he was so funny and he didn't have an ego. I mean, he just totally went out there and put Hogan over. He didn't care. Oh yeah, yeah. And and the things I've heard about Johnny, I mean, he could be kind of moody at times. He could uh you know, if he if he wanted to, he could uh you know, make it look like a million bucks and if he wanted to, he could humiliate you too, so yeah, he. I mean, he was, and, and the, the definition of a legend was Johnny Carson. And and speaking of which, Hogan. You know, we we talked about this with Andre on Letterman. And by the way, I'm I'm a big fan of Dave, David Letterman. I actually liked him more than Johnny Carson. But Johnny, I mean, David Letterman was just not at Johnny Carson's level in the early '80s. Uh, I mean, Johnny was just way bigger. That's all. But speaking of way bigger, we talked about this. Like Andre was was you know huge enormous in a setting like the late show with david letterman standing next to dave same thing with hulk hogan i mean it, it just underlined that this guy was a, an allegedly six eight probably more like six six but he was a mountain of muscle and he said he had a 24 inch arm i mean I, i'm not saying he did i know wrestlers exaggerate but i would have watched that tape and been like yeah he that's a 24 inch arm he was a, he was a mountain of muscle yeah, and back then, you can tell by the audience and their reactions. I mean, it was such a different time. I mean, this is before uh, reality TV. This is before uh, uh, the Internet, obviously. Um, I mean, they're just happy to see this guy who's you know much bigger than the average-sized person and he, he, a guy who's been in a movie with Sylvester Stallone. And, and that's enough to kind of get him over. You know, he doesn't have to do cartwheels or anything. But, you know, in our, our current age that we're living in, where uh, everything is PC and everything is, uh, you know, uh, we've seen we've seen everything that can be seen thanks to the Internet. Uh, I mean, you have to uh, do, uh, you know, a million different things to get over these days. So so kudos to Hogan for getting over it. Yeah, he, he definitely did. And I also saw, thought he had a good answer when Johnny kind of asked him the standard question, like, you know, do is this wrestling fake? I mean, you know, Hogan saying, I, I wish it, would, it was real, it would be easier. I mean, you know, you can't go out there and say, no, it's just a show, or at least you couldn't at that time. Um, but I thought that was a good answer. Yeah, I think I think he, he did fine. I mean, I, I, I sometimes, some ways I think he could have done better, but... You know, this was 82, this wasn't 84. He, 
he wasn't, uh, you know, prime Hogan yet as far as 84 national expansion. So uh, let's cut him some slack. <laughs> you know, he mentioned going to Japan and how wrestling is treated over there. I mean, I know people who went to Japan in the 80s and early 90s, and they said, you know, when you buy the sports section, they didn't have basketball, uh, no hockey, obviously no football. It was all Baseball, golf, and wrestling. Like wrestling got covered the way baseball got covered in Japan. I think that, I think that's fascinating. No, it, it is, and, and you know, um, I never collected Gong Magazine, but uh, just to see uh, how they covered the U.S. wrestling. I mean, they had, as you know, they had super great coverage of MSG, uh, uh, the Bruno defenses, Backlund defenses, uh, uh, into the Hogan era. I mean, they really covered New York big time and other promotions as well uh but uh yeah gong magazine uh, uh the other magazines they released uh you know and, and of course we're you and i and uh, uh lou our producer we're all into baseball too so i have no complaints with that i mean those are two of my favorite sports so if i ever went to japan for wrestling which isn't going to happen now but I, I was thinking about it in the 80s and 90s saving up and i'm one of my list of demands would have been going to a baseball game in Japan. That would have been very awesome. One other thing, Lou, Lou, Steve, I'm going to ask you. Um, someone mentioned, you know, oh, Hulk, do you eat, you know, Hogan says he has a steak and six eggs for breakfast. And they said, you know, someone asked, raw eggs? And he says, no, no. Did you eat raw eggs when you were a kid? Hell no. I, I, don't, I don't eat eggs of any type. <laughs> oh, wow, you don't? No, I don't, I'm not an egg guy. I just like cereal and maybe occasionally toast or orange juice or coffee. In 1982, I was eating like eight raw eggs a day, bare minimum. Really? And guess what? I never got sick. Really? <laughs> no I, joke. I, I had problems that. putting on weight, so that was my solution. Well, wow. one of my solutions. Well, well, uh, well, getting back to Japan, just for a moment, I wanted to uh -huh. say, if you ever get back to Japan, I see you going to uh, Ribera Steakhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, that, that's, that's a requirement. Unfortunately, I won't be going. And as I mentioned, I, I was in Montreal, God knows how many times I didn't go to Andre's restaurant. You know, don't have that <laughs> memory or anything. All right. Uh, let's go back to Los Angeles. We're going to do the promos for the upcoming show at the Olympic Auditorium. What a card. Olympic Auditorium a week from tonight here in Los Angeles, Saturday night, February the 25th, World Wrestling Federation Action. Coming to Southern California, Tony Atlas, one half of the World Tag Team Champions. Every time you come back home, the fans put out the red carpet. They really love you. Not only in your home, but also in Southern California. As a, you know, all over California. I went to California. I fell in love with a young lady there. I fell in love with the uh, area there. I married a young lady there by the name of Laurie, and I moved into Los Angeles. I'm an old country boy myself from Virginia, but Los Angeles became a second home to me. And when the people get there, side cheering behind me, it make you feel good to see some of your home folks out there rooting for you and giving you 100% of all they report. I thank you very much. One half of the World Tag Team Champions, Mr. USA, the great Tony Atlas. You heard what he had to say about this great uh, Los Angeles area. As a matter of fact, the entire state of California. World Wrestling Federation title match, the incredible Hulk Hogan to meet the masked superstar, Mil Mascaris to meet Iron Mike Sharp, and... Intercontinental title defense, a brand new Intercontinental champion in Tito Santana, Texas deathmatch between Santana and the magnificent Morocco. More on that just a little bit later. 
the incredible Hulk Hogan to meet this man, the masked superstar out of Atlanta, Georgia. This one for all of the apples, so to speak, all of the marbles. It's for the world title. Well, as I hear the champion saying, Hulkamania is running rampant around the California area. Within one week, I may have an antidote for that disease. I've got the passport, I've got the ticket, I've got the contract, and I've got the green light. Hulkamania, you're an impressive individual. And you've got something that I want. That's that gold belt. And I'm not going to be scared away by some disease that can be cleared up like that. The last superstar to challenge the incredible Hulk Hogan one week from tonight, Olympic Auditorium for the World's Heavyweight title. Speaking of the titles, congratulations going out to you. Last Saturday night, Boston, Massachusetts, Tito Santana victorious over the magnificent Morocco. You're the brand new Intercontinental Champion. Now all of a sudden, this match, two and a half months in the making, the roles reversed. It's a Texas death match. That's right. You know, I want to thank all the fans because they never gave up on me, and now I took it away from Morocco. And Morocco's going to, it's turned around completely. He's going to be coming at me with his guns loaded. It's going to be a very tough match. Le agradezco a toda la gente latina que me está escuchando. Trabajé mucho y el apoyo de ustedes me ayudaron para ganar esta faja. Y ahora tengo una lucha muy peligrosa en contra de Dan Morocco. Viene con sus pistolas cargadas a quitarme esta faja. Esta faja que representa a toda la gente mexicana, los latinos que me están escuchando. Y les garantizo peleará con todo mi corazón. Y ahora este mexicano es el campeón. Arriba! The great one out of Mexico, Tito Santana, one week from tonight's title defense, Don Morocco out of Hawaii, the magnificent one. And I might point out, the former champion, however, rolls reversed. This gentleman will be a Texas death yeah, man. When you Captain say former Mano. champion, that remains to be seen. I don't believe it. It's all lies. It's not true. I haven't seen I was there. Were you there? Did you see what happened? In Boston, no, no, you didn't. No, you did not. I watched you. Anybody seen what happened? Anybody seen what happened? Very conveniently. Anybody seen what happened? Conveniently. For all the officials, for all the members, for all the committee. Every time there's a title match, there's a film. Somehow, somehow, some way, it disappeared. Somehow, there is no proof. Why? Now, we don't want to say Santana and his people are no, thieves. Okay, they're thieves. What the heck? They're thieves. So somebody's been working, taking their little scissors and going clip, 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 saying, I beat Morocco. I beat Morocco. You can hear it. You can hear his pockets clanging. He got hubcaps in his car. He's a thief. But if he wants to be a, that is a it, strong statement. Oh, it's true. It's strong. You ever stood next to the man? If he wants to be a champion, if he wants to stay champion, if he wants to know what it's like. To really be on the top of the mountain. To really experience magnificent. Come on and get it. Oh, Ariba boy. You're going to have to be at your very best. And you're going to have to be magnificent at your best. Magnificent one. Matter. I've got a 901.3 millimeter. I'm going to produce. where do we even start this was our lives growing up <laughs> and the, the audio sometimes does not do it justice but we'll, we'll start from the beginning steve 
Tony Atlas comes out and says that he's married on TV. Actually, Tony did that a lot, and that was kind of a no-no in wrestling. Yeah, yeah, that threw me for a curve, too. I mean, I, I was expecting him to talk about the foot finish thing, but other than that, I mean, getting married, uh, that was like a complete surprise to me. Yeah, they just didn't talk about their wives, their children, nothing. It was very different than, you know, baseball and football and everything else I followed. Another great interview from the mass superstar talking about how he has the the cure or the antidote for the Hulkamania disease. I loved that line. Yeah, that that was very unique and uh and, and it's a good thing that Hogan beat him because uh you know, there was nobody else with the anecdote for years to come, so it, it would be a long time before we find the, uh, the, the uh, what's the word I'm looking for, the, the cure for that disease, to say the least. Morocco and Albano then do a wild interview that just the audio itself does not do justice to. Well, it was a great interview, but you get t- points taken off for the Tito Santana and his people line. And I, I'm not going to, I can't say it enough. Everyone I knew in 1984 was turned off whenever wrestling pulled that stunt. It wasn't like in 84, ah, oh, that's funny, that's cool. It's like, no, don't do that, man. No, no, I, I hated that aspect of it. And uh, and I also want to say that, you know, we're hearing a lot of these Tito Santana interviews and he just became an Intercontinental Champion. And we've got Alice and Johnson as the tag team champions. I kind of think that uh, Vince taking the promotion from his father and, Vince's father liked to have um, a lot of diversity on his cards as far as having stars from all over the world appear on his shows. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why the WWF resonated so much with its core audience of kids and teens and families is you had uh, uh, black superstars and Spanish superstars. They weren't all white. Um, JCP, they had many great opportunities. They could have brought in JYD. They could have brought in uh, Tito Santana, and they just pushed him aside and said, we don't need you. And and I think when uh, push came to shove and uh, it was time for Turner to uh, buy out Jim Crockett, I think that was probably one of the reasons why, that they weren't uh, weren't up with the times and weren't as a progressive promotion as Vince's promotion was. Supposedly, Dusty Rhodes considered himself the black superstar. And when I say that, I'm not joking. <laughs> well, I will say, as far as the interview we just heard with uh, Captain Lou, uh, uh, this is going to be Captain Lou's final year as a heel manager. And as you can tell by that interview he just did, he's really uh, ending it out with a bang because, uh, man, all these interviews are a candidate for top interview of the year. And and like I said, the audio doesn't do it justice. At the end, he starts like circling Gene Okerlund, like walking around him in a circle. And Okerlund, you can tell, is just not used to this. Yeah, he he was being threatened by Captain Lou, but it was very uh, it was a very entertaining interview. Just I mean, a, a ball of energy out there. And you're right, uh, Lou made the most out of his last year as a heel, and we'll see more of that as as this podcast rolls on. We are going to have our final audio segment now it's piper's pit with tony Garia, and once again a reminder all audio on the national expansion is for review purposes only let's go to that uh, this week on piper's pit we have with us mr tony Garia, who has been five times world's heavyweight champion and tony i know you've been an tr- extremely good tag team wrestler uh the problem that i find here is 
winning the tag team world tag team championship five times all that really means is you've lost the world tag team championship five times now i know your partners uh rick martell for instance who was a tremendous tag team wrestler do you feel any animosity yourself towards your partners or do you feel it just because of yourself possibly you have not been the partner that they should have had possibly you did not train quite as hard after all you lost the thing five times in a row uh that's uh that's an enormous record and a, and a tremendous Piper, you must remember to Just lose. one second. Wait till I'm finished. Just one second here. Five times in a row, to, to lose a world title five times in a row and having five different partners with the exception of Martel two times must tell you something, must tell you that it's... Mr. Piper, as I was trying to say, to lose it five times. Just wait, wait, wait one second. Let, please let me finish my point. My point is this. If you have the title five times in a row with five different partners and you lose the thing five times in a row, maybe the fault does not lie with the... Piper, excuse me, how many times have you had the world record? Just wait a second. How many times have I held it? I have, I have been a world champion. I have been a... Mr. Piper, just before I leave, I'd like to tell you one thing. I, did. I would never be seen dead wearing a skirt. Obviously, obviously, when someone has nothing less nothing else to say the lowest form of humor or wit is is, is is desecration like that and if that's the way he wants to be he just proves the man that he is i liked how piper's pit is now evolving we have you know they have one microphone out there which piper is holding and half of piper's pit is piper and the guest wrestling for the microphone yeah, yeah, and, and it's uh, it, it's great how they're doing this because uh, it's it's definitely getting Roddy over as the most hated guy of the week on the TV show, and when somebody eventually will stand up to him, it, it'll be a moment the fans will be just anticipating and just can't wait to see him get to maybe a fist in Piper's mouth. Oh, yeah. I mean, with this one, you know, Tony Gurria throws out the line about him wearing a skirt. You could hear the crowd pop. Yeah, they pop big time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, basically, and we're going to have this soon. I mean, you can tell the, the, the crowd is waiting for someone, uh, one of the babyface wrestlers, to stand up for themselves against Roddy Piper. And I think that's coming soon. Yeah, and I think with the Piper, the fact that, you know, on these on these cards and they're all being taped in, uh, in Pennsylvania, um, it's not like he's out there wrestling every week. He's essentially coming out and just doing this act every week, this Piper's Pit, and he's definitely getting on the people's nerves. And I think uh, for the tapings, they're probably a lot of the same people every week. So they're just uh, really annoyed by him, and they, they can't wait to see him get his comeuppance. And things, as, as we've pointed out, are changing quickly. I mean, we just got through the first two months of 1984, and we have basically a hurricane and a tornado that has landed in the WWF, one in the form of Hulk Hogan, the new world's heavyweight champion, and one in the form of Roddy Piper, uh, who's being presented as a super heel with his own talk show. Yeah, and and the way they're doing it right now, you have no idea or no no inclination that eventually these two are going to go up against each other. Uh, I mean, as a fan, that didn't even scratch my mind back then. I don't know how you felt about it around this time, John, but uh, I didn't even even anticipate them having a match. I I definitely did, and I'll tell you why. It was what I was conditioned to. <laughs> if a heel was any good. Bob Backlund was going to wrestle him, right? So I right. figured they would keep doing the same thing with Hogan. 
Well, well, yeah, that's true. But also, it just seemed uh, it, my initial impression of Piper, even though he was a, a huge big mouth, he didn't really seem like uh, big enough to be a threat to Hogan. But when when they finally get in the ring, you can see even though Hogan is a lot bigger size wise, there's a lot of uh, fight in the dog that is Piper, and uh, Piper's got a lot of heart, and uh, definitely the two of them stood toe to toe when they got in the ring together. Yeah, Piper was kind of small for a heel, but uh, Steve, I don't know if you followed uh, wrestling through the magazines by this point. Like I had been following since 1976, so I knew who Piper was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had actually seen him on cable in Georgia as well, and I knew he was you know, the United States Heavyweight Champion and, and Crockett, and that he was a big star. So I, I figured they would wrestle, but I, I thought it would be the typical WWF formula where they have, you know, the first match goes to a double DQ. Second match is stopped because Hogan's bleeding too bad. Third match is the blow-off Texas death match or whatever, and they, they didn't do that. Yeah, and, th- and thank God they didn't. I mean, and, and I guess a lot of that was just the, the Piper's willpower. Uh, he refused to do business that way, uh, the traditional way. But as a, as a result of that, he kept himself fresh. He kept to kept the heat on him, and he, he remained on that high uh, place wherever Hogan was. He was on the opposite side as a heel in that high, uh, elevated place. And, um, yeah, I know in the in the recent uh, special on Piper on A&E, uh, Hogan said that uh, he, he wishes uh, Piper had relented and they could have had more one-on-one matches and made Piper a lot of money from the revenue of their, their huge gates against each other. But Piper was very protective of his position, he didn't want to do a whole bunch of jobs for Hogan. So it worked out. It really worked out well in the end, I think. I think so, too. I mean, I haven't seen the A&E special, but I, it seems like by protecting himself, and I know that's that's not always looked upon fondly. You know, you're kind of being selfish. But, um, I mean, Piper, you know, he had that run in 84 into 85, and he started puttering out a little bit, I thought, in 1986. Actually, the Piper's pitch from 85, uh, take a step back from 84. We'll get more into that later. But, uh, I mean, you know, he was still a main eventer in 85, uh, and 86, but then again, so were guys who lost to Hogan. So who knows? Right, right. Well, he, uh, because he didn't, uh, you know, do a series of uh, losses to Hogan, he still kind of kept that mystery about him. You know, what would happen if Hogan and him have a, another big match? I mean, they would have one with the Wrestling Classic, which, we're, again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But, um, but you know, even as late as, say, the uh, WCW era in 96, so when Piper came in to face Hogan, uh, there was a huge interest in that because this issue never really gave the fans closure. There was never never a closure with the the rivalry with these two. So uh, uh, what they what they built in '84 and '85 really resonated in '96 for those hardcore fans that still remembered it. When we get to this part point, I will talk about uh, seeing Hulk Hogan versus Roddy Piper at the Boston Garden twice. Uh, I believe the very beginning of 1985, if not the very end of 1984, and uh, that was they didn't do that anywhere else, which really surprised it surprised me when I learned that. I just figured, okay, they went around the horn with it, but they didn't. I can't wait to hear those uh, your your take on that because I I've never heard you talk about those shows. So I look forward to that. All right, and we have finally gotten to March 1st. We completely caught up on all of our audio with this show. I hope everyone enjoyed it. I mean, there was a lot of good stuff here, Steve. 
It was great. It was great to revisit it. And uh, yeah, I'm glad that our audience gets to hear it. Uh, I'm sure for many of them, it's the first time they've ever heard it. No, for a, for a lot of people. And I, I dug a little deeper and found some stuff from er, you know, earlier in January. So parts that we've gone over before. But next week, we're going to go back to reading. But we'll have audio next week, but we'll also have some results and talk about some new stuff that was going on March 1984. I'm looking forward to it, Steve. I'm looking forward to it, too. Uh, there's a lot more that we haven't even scratched the surface of. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. I had a great time listening to it for the first time since we recorded it about two and a half years ago. Uh, I mean, what a great time in the WWF. Yes, it took some getting used to. Uh, but, it, you know, I mean, looking back, I mean, you listen to those interviews and it's just nuts. But anyway, next week. Probably for the next two weeks, we're going to be getting away from the WWF National Expansion, but still talking about 1984. I can't believe 1984 was 40 years ago. I bet right now, 40 years ago to this moment, I'm in a car with a bunch of dudes listening to John Mellencamp. Uh, What's the name of that song? Pink Houses. Thank you. But uh, I am very excited about next week's show. We are doing the 1984 year-end awards. I'm not the wacky morning DJ who gets excited about everything, uh, but I, you guys know if you've listened to the show, I love the year-end awards. We can only do it once a year, so we're doing that next week. And with that, I want to thank Brian Last for giving me this forum. I want to thank Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does week in and week out with Sick to Wrestling. Most importantly, I want to thank all of you for listening. I hope you had uh, enjoyed this hour and a half or whatever it was of Stick to Wrestling. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. This concludes our podcast day.